1: When a church is living together and working together in unity, it is a living testimony that Jesus was sent by God. And when a church is not living together and working together in unity, it does not provide a testimony that Jesus was sent
0: by God. Unity is so key in our churches and so misunderstood. Welcome to today's study verse by verse with Pastor Leighton Sheeley. We're back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 today, looking at verses 10 and following, as we explore the understanding from Scripture, just exactly what unity is, what it looks like, and why it is so important. From Church of the Highlands in San Bruno, let's catch up with Pastor Leighton Sheely for this Tuesday edition of Study Verse by Verse. Here's Pastor Leighton.
1: I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another, so that there might be no divisions among you, and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas, or Peter. And still another, I follow Christ." Now, the reason that this was the high priority for the Apostle Paul is that it was the high priority of Jesus Christ. In fact, in his prayer, just before going to the cross, as recorded for us in John chapter 17, Jesus prayed to the Father, I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world may know that you sent me. And when a church is living together and working together in unity, it is a living testimony that Jesus was sent by God. And when a church is not living together and working together in unity, it does not provide a testimony that Jesus was sent by God. You see, the very nature of God is unity. For instance, the scriptures say that there is one God and describe three people working in unity. One God Three persons. The very nature of God is unity. In Proverbs chapter 6, there are seven things that are detestable, identified as detestable to the Lord. And the seventh item is a man who stirs up dissension or discord or arguments or contentions among brothers. And that list, by the way, also contains murderers. So those who stir up contentions amongst friends and brothers are in the company of murderers. Now the divisions in the church at Corinth began after the founding pastor, the Apostle Paul, left for work elsewhere. Apollos was invited to be the new pastor. And although neither Paul nor Apollos in any way encouraged division, the congregants formed fan clubs around their favorite church leader and their expressions of of appreciation for their favorite soon turned into expressions of depreciation for others. And as a result, heated arguments ensued over who was the best preacher or who was the best pastor. You know, it is human nature for us to have favorites, but we should never allow our personal preferences to be a cause for division. Continuing on, verse 13, Paul says writes, "'Is Christ divided? "'Was Paul crucified for you? "'Were you baptized into the name of Paul? "'I am thankful that I did not baptize any of you, "'except Crispus and Gaius, "'so no one can say that you were baptized into my name. "'Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanas. "'Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. "'For Christ did not send me to baptize, "'but to preach the gospel.' Not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And so Paul says, is Christ divided? And he argues that we as a church cannot be divided and still be the body of Christ. You see, Christ is the head of his church. And all of the parts of the body work together at the prompting of the head. Any part that is disconnected from the rest of the body is also disconnected from the head. And so Paul asks the question, is Christ divided? No. Are there disconnected parts of Christ's body floating around somewhere? No. We're connected together because we are connected to Christ, our head. And we must work together as the body of Christ. And then Paul turns his correction to those who were associated with his division, the ones that said, I am of Paul. And that was very wise because his first reprimand went towards those who would listen to him, which no doubt got the attention of everyone. He said, did I die for your sins? And the answer is obviously not. And then Paul asked the question, were you baptized into the name of Paul? And the answer, of course, is no. They were baptized into the name of Christ Jesus. And so our attention today is turned to the matter of baptism. Baptism. And I know for some that this message today might be review, but occasionally it's good to get back to basics and review the foundations of our faith. Well, some background on baptism will be of help to us. The word baptize, baptizo, was used in the time of Hippocrates, and it meant to immerse. To Plato, he used the meaning to sink a ship. You see, a ship that is sunk is fully immersed. Hellenism uses the word to bathe and to wash. Josephus, the historian, used the term as to die, D Y E, that is to change the color of. When something is plunged in to die, it comes out different, it comes out transformed, it comes out changed. And the idea of going underwater or perishing is near the general usage. Today, baptism is almost universally associated with the Christian faith. But at the time of the writing of the New Testament, the writings of Paul, that was not so. In fact, it was a common event in the time of the writings of the New Testament. In fact, some of the pagan religions used baptism in their rituals. Jews would baptize Gentile converts into Judaism. And some Jewish sects practiced baptism as a symbol of purification. And John the Baptist made baptism an important part of his ministry. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19, because I want us to look at something. The Bible teaches that the baptism of John is distinct from the baptism into Christ, and that's why we're going to look at Acts chapter 19. It's also mentioned elsewhere, such as chapters 13 and 18, but we're looking at chapter 19. And Paul described John's baptism as a baptism of repentance, And although repentance is essential in preparing the way for the Messiah and salvation, repentance alone is not sufficient. We're in chapter 19, verse 1. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. And so, in the Bible, Paul clarifies that the baptism of John the Baptist Was a precursor or an introduction to the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. As you do so, I'll make a few comments here concerning baptism. It says in the scriptures that we are baptized into Christ, and it signifies a union with Christ. The Greek word into, ice, represents a mystical union where the one being baptized is owned by the one they are baptized into. He bears the name of his owner. And that's why the name of the Lord is pronounced or invoked or confessed by either the one who is doing the baptizing or the one who is being baptized. And when we're baptized into Christ Jesus, we are declaring that we are owned by Christ Jesus, that we belong to Christ Jesus, that we were bought with the price, that we are Christ Jesus' property, and Christ Jesus is God, and nothing can separate us from God. So Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, verse 3 and following, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father... We too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. Now you notice verse 4 says, We too may live a new life. Baptism represents a new allegiance, a new beginning, a new life. What was before is washed away. John the Baptist's baptism was an expression of allegiance to the repentance from sin, sin being activity or behavior that is displeasing to God. But John's baptism was only part of the equation, it was the precursor, the introduction, the preparation. For John the Baptist was brought to prepare the way of the Lord. And repentance is a part of preparing the way of the Lord. Because the way of the Lord is repenting from sin and being obedient. And we can see that connection clearly as we continue our reading in Romans 6, chapter uh, chapter 6, verse 6 and following. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin." And so grace and baptism and freedom from sin and life with Christ are all interconnected.
0: Well, there is more to explore on this. Next time we are together, we are out of time today here on Study Verse by Verse. We leave you with our website. If you'd like to visit, learn more about Study Verse by Verse, Church of the Highlands in San Bruno, where we meet, service times and directions. You can find it all on our website, highlands.us along with a lot of extra resource materials to help further your walk in the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, that's highlands.us, highlands.us. Thank you for joining us. Until tomorrow, with more out of 1 Corinthians on study, verse by verse, may the Lord richly bless you.